This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Zach Scheinberg, managing partner of Wind Raven, a real estate investment and development company based in New York. Very proud graduate twice of the Wharton School and an adjunct faculty member at the University of Michigan Ross. It is my pleasure today to have on the show probably the most prolific real estate investment sales broker in the New York City tri-state area. Is that fair to say? Most one of the most prolific. I, I'll take one of the most. Okay. Thank you, Zach. One That's of the very, most very prolific. kind of you. Although I, I, I do have to ask about uh, graduating Wharton twice. I hope you didn't have to <laughs> go back and repeat. Maybe that's we for will, a separate we'll get, show. We'll get to that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so for those listeners outside of New York, New York tri-state area includes New York City, Long Island, Northern New Jersey, Westchester, Rockland uh, County, Westchester County, Rockland County, and southeastern Connecticut. James is the head of oh, James Nelson, whose name I actually didn't just even say. James Nelson is the head of Tri-State Investment Sales at Avison Young and the author of the monthly and very aptly named Nelson Report. Uh, James, how can listeners sign up for that? Just email me at james.nelson at avisonyoung.com. And thank you, James, for joining the show today. Thanks. It's fantastic to, to be here, although I think my kids were a little disappointed to hear that I was not going to be on Hits 1 and my colleagues thought that I was going to be on the Stern Show. That was the, the way I was going to try to get them to, to listen in. But well, this we're, could be gonna, the first step. That's it. So let me start with this. Um, why didn't you name your monthly newsletter The Full Nelson? You know, I got to say, Zach, I actually did not come up with that name. Uh, certainly was not a former professional wrestler, um, although uh, growing up uh, with, with a younger brother, I, I probably did employ the half Nelson a couple times. <laughs> so let me start with this. Um, let's talk about your background. First, just give us a quick overview of what a real estate investment sales broker does and is, just for people listening who people hear the term all the time, they come across them in the real estate business, but just to clarify exactly what it is that a broker is and does. Sure. So it's actually similar to what a residential broker would do uh, when when you look at the, the basic principles. So owners retain us to go out and sell their property, and we handle a variety of different asset classes in the New York metro area office buildings, multifamily, retail development. So our job is to help them understand the value of the property uh, and then go out and market and find a a buyer who's going to pay the top price. So why, given the way that the markets work where sellers own properties, they can sell them, buyers who want to buy properties, they can go out and buy them. Why is it, in my opinion, if a broker is good, why is it absolutely critical that you're involved in the process? Well, uh, there are off-market transactions that happen, and there it does start to depart a little bit from residential. Uh, in fact, a third of the transactions in New York City happen without a major brokerage firm where there's not a broker involved. But to have an intermediary, I think, first of all, uh, is very helpful in the process, certainly if negotiations get heated, uh, but also to help act as an advisor and put options on the table. Um, you know, when, when owners, uh, you know, if you're in New York City, you own property, you're probably getting called once, twice a week, hey, do you want to sell your property? And, you know, if you just act on one of those offers, let's say you take the first bid that, that someone gives you, there's a great risk that you're going to leave a lot of money on the table because what a good broker does is expose it to the entire marketplace and put multiple offers on the table. And once we show our client a process, show them 15, 20 offers, it's a lot easier for them to understand, you know, what is market value and then create the leverage to get the transaction done on the right price and terms. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it. Um, but to take one step back in your background, just to give listeners a little bit of a sense of who you are, where you came from. So you graduated college from Colgate. Yes. And you decided that you were going to join Massey Knackle, which no longer in that current form exists, which we'll get to in a second. Most people, so in my class at Michigan Ross, almost everyone who takes a real estate investment class wants to work at Blackstone or Westbrook or Related or Brookfield, some massive institution or big developer. You decided to go work in investment sales, which is a great career, but why does everyone in my class want to go do that? And why did you decide to do it? Well, you're giving me too much credit in that I actually (laughs) knew what I wanted to do back in college. I mean, the truth be told, my senior spring, I had no clue whatsoever what I wanted to do. All my friends had uh, investment banking jobs, and I said, look, I better figure out what I'm going to do. So I went up to the Career Service Center, and as luck would have it, 
the deadline was that day uh, to drop a resume for Massey Knackle, and they didn't even require a, a cover letter back then. And so I said, you know, what? I'm going to just drop a resume in there. Uh, later, I would find out there was only two people who applied for that job, and I was their second choice. So um, <laughs> luckily, they decided to hire two people. So, um, you know, it, it was really luck uh, that I fell into this industry. And, you know, I've been doing this 20 years, and today I'm so impressed by the college grads who know, have a, a great sense of what they want to do. They have real-life experience before, but, you know, it was also, you know, my college days. I'm glad I could try out some other things as well. Um, but, yeah, that, that's uh, – sorry, I can't give you more, more advice in that uh, respect. Did, uh, did Mr. Massey and Mr. Knackle know that story, or do they know it now? They yes they 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 were certainly on the other other side of it um, and, and the other piece of that story was when I did uh, accept the job I told them well you know maybe I'll take a month or two and I'm going to drive cross country after college and they said you know um, we need you to start next week and by the way if you don't want to show up we've got a whole bunch of other people that uh, want the job and um, so I, I showed up that next week but they might not have had anybody else that's true considering that's the true yes I, when I, you were the... I learned my first uh, uh, lesson of real estate. State, uh, negotiating, so that there, there was definitely uh, a little bit of gamesmanship there. But so you took the trip? Yes. No. 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 I did not take the trip. No. 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 I'm, I'm here today. <laughs> so just talk for talk for um, just a second or so on Massey Nackle when you joined was not the company that it ultimately became when it was absorbed by Cushman and Wakefield. Um, when you joined, what was it like? How did you work on growing the business with uh, Bob and Paul over time to grow it into what probably became the largest, with respect to uh, number of deals, investment sales brokerage in the New York area? Sure. When I started, we uh, the company had been in existence for 10 years. Uh, Bob and Paul were the top producing salespeople uh, for Coldwell Banker, which would become CBRA. And they had built this great model, this territory system where they had divided up the city uh, and they were really specializing in small to mid-sized building sales. And um, maybe a lot of your uh, investors are, you know, maybe they're not interested in going out or trying to buy these big trophy office buildings. But we, we found this segment of the market where actually 95% of the transactions actually occurred. So we were very happy to be in this space. Um, and as you mentioned, over time, and this was by the time we sold the company about three and a half years ago, we were doing two to three times the amount of sales in the next, as the next brokerage firm uh, in any given year. Smaller size, but much more volume. That's right. Which was a long tail, a, solu- a long tail solution to a problem that existed because a lot of the brokerages thought that the best way to go and make the most money was focus on the hundred million dollar deal, five hundred million dollar deal, and you guys built a really incredible business based on doing smaller deals, but a lot more of them, and you became an expert in that space. That's correct. Um, so I think that there are there is somewhat of a misconception in the market among real estate investors or people who don't know the market that well about what it is that brokers do and. In my in my experience, the most brokers are probably not that good, but the ones that are good are incredibly helpful to a transaction. I mean, I've gotten calls from brokers who get my last name wrong, who just throw deals out or email deals and they blast it out and they don't really target any particular buyer um, and they're probably not even exclusive um, to a seller who's selling a property. So how is it that a broker can be good? I mean, you have proven over a long time that you are very helpful for sellers, incredibly helpful for buyers. How do you get to that point? Mm-hmm. And how do these buyer, how do these brokers in the market actually function if they aren't really doing the job well? Sure. So I don't believe that I'm in the sales business. I believe that I'm in the information business. So you're right. A lot of my competitors, they call up and down the block and they ask owners, are you selling? Are you selling? Are you selling? That's a very short-sighted conversation. Uh, really what's in it for the broker, not for the the owner of the property. Um, We make a big point to have great research, great data, and uh, really act as an advisor. So when we're calling up an owner, we're saying, have you heard about this latest zoning change that's taken place in the area, this new retail tenant, this new record sale that took place, and really, um, again, providing information. And when we're marketing properties, I'm not expecting for you to do all the work. I want to do a lot of the, the, the due diligence that goes into this to do all the research uh, on that property. I'm also a big believer that I you know put all everything on the table at once. Surprises are never good. You're going to find out anyways, right? Yeah. So I would rather tell you up front the good, the bad, the ugly, and help you analyze the opportunity, and then it just becomes part of the transaction. 
And so I think that's a big piece to it as well, is we're really here to help you make an informed decision. And so for people who want to get into the business or have been in the business for a while, what would you say as a junior person you did or what do junior people do now versus you in a senior position now, you are probably spending a bunch of time managing a company, but also still doing brokerage. How does the job change from when you come in as a junior person to a senior person? Right. So I I still broker, as you mentioned, and yes, I I now have uh, a sales team. And as you mentioned, I I just moved to Avis & Young, uh, a firm, a Canadian firm that came to the U.S. 10 years ago. We now have over 50 offices here, and they were doing leasing and finance in, in New York, and we had an opportunity to build out a sales team. So yes, that is a big part of what I do, but I still uh, make those calls and, and do brokerage. Um, for those starting out, I think it's so important to specialize. Uh, and again, with um, commercial, there's different asset classes, uh, there's different geographies. And when you say New York, and you're talking about New York City and our five boroughs, it's very different, the types of opportunities that might exist in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, going from one asset class to another. So my advice to those brokers starting out is pick an area, uh, pick an asset class, and really become an expert so you can add value and, and know what you're talking about. How does – so you have you were at Massey. Massey got absorbed by Cushman, and now you're at Avison Avis Young. Yes. Avison Young. Yes. Avis, not, not Avison Young. Avison Young. That's yes. How would you compare the three different companies in terms of culture, what they do, what they focus on? Is there really a big difference? Because my sense is that um, when you leave, you have built up a book of business. People trust you to represent them as a seller or to help them as a buyer to find deals. How much of um, a real estate investor, the business that they want to do is I want to work with Avison Young or I want to work with Massey Knackle versus I want to work with James Nelson in this particular business? So I, I think it's both. And to answer your question, yes, there, there were differences. Massey Knackle was a regional firm. Cushman um, is one of the largest globally. Uh, Avis & Young is also uh, a global full-service company, but it's principally owned. So I'm one of 450 principals that own the company. So although we have the global reach, we have, if you want to call it for lack of a better word, kind of the family feel where you know, you all are invested um, and, and you know, take pride in ownership of, of that business. This is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Jerry XM, Channel 132. I'm Zach Scheinberg in the studio today with James Nelson of Avis & Young talking about real estate investment sales. So I want to move into uh, just talking about deals generally, because in your job, uh, it's important, obviously, to have a stable of sellers and stable of buyers that you know as a way to source deals and then sell deals and transact and ultimately earn income. How do you do that? How do you source sellers? How do you source buyers? Is it something that someone can jump into tomorrow and then they uh, know tons of sellers and they have an exclusive listing and exclusive versus non-exclusive? How do you generate business from sellers to start? So again, it starts with that information and being a resource. And a lot of my clients today, I've been working with them for 20 years and they've called upon me for advice. Uh, I've shown them opportunities over the years. Um, And so it's really building those relationships uh, over time. And and one of my sales coaches, uh, Rod Santamassimo, uh, is really big on cultivating uh, a list. He, he calls it a, a top 100. Who are your 100 most influential people that you're going to go in and really uh, have those relationships? So uh, that's certainly helpful. Um, and then as far as when we're actually retained to go out, and, and yes, we only work on an exclusive basis. So Could you just explain what that means? Sure. So owners retain us to sell their property, and when they retain us exclusively, that means whether – we find the buyer, uh, we work with another brokerage firm, whether they bring a buyer to the table, uh, we're really the quarterback. So all that interest funnels through us so we can qualify it, create that market and generate the, the highest price. So that really gives us the opportunity to represent them, our fiduciaries with the seller to go out there and get that top price. And then once I have that, that allows me and our team to do a lot of things. We can send the information out directly to all the owners in New York City. When I started 20 years ago, I had you know paper catalogs, three-ring binders, and I have to go down to the buildings department and wait 30 minutes in line for a certificate of occupancy. I mean, today, everything is at your fingertips, right? So we have that information. You know, We can send that to other similar property owners. 
uh, also our online pre- presence, the multiple listing service. Um, you know, and we have uh, a database today that we our, our company has open architecture with. We all share. So if there's a buyer who's in San Francisco and they're looking for New York, um, you know, we work with our, our other brokers uh, across the city. But you want, again, to it really is truly a global market when you're talking about New York. You're not just focusing on the known buyers. You're always looking for that new hot capital that's coming into the marketplace. So you mentioned uh, that there was your mentor, I guess, had a top 100 list. So I guess you have a top 100 list. So we have a little bit of time. So who are the 100 people on the list? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so let, let me ask you something that you you mentioned before. So because I think that there's a little bit of, uh, I would say, frustration on the side of sellers probably because I've definitely experienced this when I'm using mortgage brokers, specifically less investment sales brokers. If I sign an exclusive with a mortgage broker and a mortgage broker goes out there, I pick up the phone and I call a bank and I get a loan and they didn't call that bank. I'm frustrated that I still need to pay a fee to them, which that's what I agreed to. So that's fair. But how would you just respond to that just kind of as a policy? Um, why is it important that you have an exclusive no matter where the, the uh, buyer comes from? Right. So you want someone in your corner who is um, bringing in all those proposals, uh, creating that marketplace and uh, the competition. So, you know, again, if we go out, we might have two, three hundred buyers sign up for a package. We might have 15 or 20 proposals. And look, maybe it is your next door neighbor who becomes the ultimate buyer. But they are not going to pay that top price on the right terms until we've created that marketplace. So we just, I always tell owners, we do the same amount of work, whether we find the buyer, you find the buyer, uh, another broker brings the buyer. But the idea is you come in because, because of your network and your experience selling properties, you can, you're making an argument that you are going to get a better price or at the very least provide clarity into the market so that you're getting the most efficient price or the best price possible. It might be what the seller already thinks he or she is going to get, but you are providing that clarity. No question at all, because if you're just using your network or maybe a couple of brokers have been calling you trying to do an off-market transaction, and when that happens, the broker does not represent you, they represent the buyer. And you might have, you know, a couple offers on the table, but the universe of buyers who actually know about your property might only be 10, 15, where if I can go out and send it to my database of 300,000 prospects, we can post it online, we can work with the brokerage community, the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor, right? It's a numbers game. The more prospects that we bring to the table, the more offers, the higher the price. So it's... You're trying to effectively replicate replicate what a stock exchange is, except it's not public and there are no SEC. But for real estate, you want to get to as many potential buyers as possible to find whoever's going to pay the most amount of money because the first person you talk to very likely is not going to be the highest bidder, just like the first person you go out on a date with at any point in your life, probably not going to be the person you end up marrying. Well put. So talk to me about the, the first deal that you worked on. Um, I remember when I was practicing law, the first deal that I was responsible for, uh, the closing, it was on a Friday. <clears throat> the attorney with whom I was working had to leave early that day, and this was probably six months into me practicing law. There was a lot to do, a lot of documents to make sure were correct. Wiring money had to go out, and it was incredibly stressful trying to get a first deal done. Turned out that we didn't get it done, and we had to punt, uh, punt it until Monday, which I heard about on Monday from the attorney I was working with, but I admittedly didn't really know much and was trying my best. Talk to me about the first deal that you did. What were the stresses? What happened? What was the deal? How did you feel while you were doing it? So the first year of my career, I, I was a sales associate, so I, I was working on um, one of the founder's transactions and showing property, but the, the, the first opportunity once I, I, I became a full-fledged salesperson uh, and calling my neighborhood, which was Chelsea, and this was in the late 1990s, just as that that neighborhood was was really getting built up, and uh, called upon an owner who had a 30 unit apartment building in Chelsea, and th- this was the the 57 Chevy that had been left in the garage. I mean, he he was really uh, he was an absentee owner wasn't really watching what was going on. The, the building was not in great shape and the rents were, you know, at about a third of what the market should have been. So he says, look, I'm interested in selling. I'm going to come up and I'm going to, you know, I'll fly up. We can talk about it. Um, I was all excited. This was my first presentation. Uh, I grabbed Paul Massey, say, hey, can you help me out with this presentation? And we, we sit there and 
you know, for the first 30, 40 minutes, he's just, you know, asking this gentleman questions about, you know, where he's from and, you know, oh, he used to work for Solomon Brothers back in the day. What was that like? And, you know, I was really thinking to myself, well, you know, when are we going to get to the, the good stuff? Wait, you know, we, we got a, we got a property sell. And then we, we present the numbers. And then finally, Paul says, you know, are you really sure that you want to sell this property? And I almost fell out of my chair. I said, you know, aren't we here to this, this gentleman saying he wants to hire us to sell a property. And Paul's sitting here telling him maybe he shouldn't because it's a great asset. And, you know, I learned a very valuable lesson. You, you can't look at things on a on a short term or what's in your best interest as a broker. It's always client first. What is in their best interest? And sometimes the advice is not to sell. And what Paul was really doing is saying, look, if you don't have the ability to manage this property uh, in the right way, then yes, you know, the, the sale makes sense. And that was ultimately what was decided upon. And I, I think we we ended up selling for three million six fifty. I mean the property is probably worth, you know, close to Ten times that today, but um, it was uh, it was a great lesson learned from the start. So it's a good lesson in relationships are important. Relationship building is important, and you want to work with somebody that you like, but more importantly, that you trust, who you think has your best interest in mind. If you're a seller and you're hiring an investment sales broker, that person is supposed to be on your team, not doing things just in order for them to make income. But there are a lot of brokers out there who dollar first. So I think part of the reason that you've been very successful has been your ability to build relationships. I mean, you still talk to me, and I've never used you to sell a property, which, I mean, it's great spending time with you. But I mean, that's like testament to your ability to be good at your job. That's right. You, you want to be a resource, and even if it's not today, maybe it's five, ten years down the road. But if you're just looking to make the quick sale, then, then I feel like, you know, that, then you're right. There are a lot of brokers. I also there. think that the one, one uh, referral that I gave you ended up being a complete, just incredibly annoying uh, deal to work on. I'm trying to. I, I'm hoping we did make that sale. Did, did we figure it out or no? I think that they ended up not selling. Okay, so I, right. I apologize right. for that. We'll, we'll, we'll... Um, so I just want to talk about process for a second. So I'm a seller. You're representing me and selling the asset. I decide I'm going to work with you. We sign an exclusive brokerage agreement. What happens now? So we're going to really do our deep dive, do do our due diligence. We want to find out everything about the property. We're going to look at the leases. We're going to look at your property conditions reports, any environmental reports. We're going to look at the zoning. We're going to see if there's opportunities to further expand on the property. Really, you know, do a, a deep dive. I mean, we've already at this point given you a valuation. We've told you what we think the property's worth, but now we're going to get all the collateral to put into a marketing package, the offering memorandum. You know, we'll set up a, a due diligence data room. And so we just we want to get all the information together, get our marketing materials ready, get the um, the flyers ready to, to go out uh, to, to – you know, put it on the, the multiple listing sites and, and go live. So there's an OM, you do the process. What does a process normally look like? So from start to finish, it's about five to six months. So, you know, in those first couple of weeks, we're getting the marketing materials together. Uh, we're ready to launch. We send it out to everyone at, at once. It's usually about four to six weeks where we're uh, taking reaching out to interested buyers. We're taking them through the property. We're getting offers. You mean giving property tours? That's right. And how do you decide who's serious and who's not serious? Because you're not going to give a property tour to every single person that calls up. You have to do some vetting. That's right. So, you know, in what we do, oftentimes, if it is a local buyer, they've done it before. And you've seen, you know, that they've bought these five properties over the last five years. And that's usually a pretty good indication that if they've performed before, they're going to perform again. You know, there is instances where there's, you know, new capital coming to the market and we have to make that judgment call based on the questions they're asking. Do they have the right uh, team in place, uh, whether it's the right broker, whether it's the right counsel to really make sure that they are credible? Uh, But yes, to bring them through the property to get that offer, to make sure that we work with them. So if they have any questions or contingencies, you know, New York City is um, uh, a, a market that that is uh, different than maybe if you're buying in a secondary or tertiary market. You need to be able to move fast. You need to be able to put hard money down. We, we call it as is, where is. There's no contingencies in a transaction. So, you know, we're working with those buyers to help them if they have a question about zoning or this or that. And not that we're representing anything, but we're telling them, look, you need to get counsel on this uh, so we can better improve your offer. Once we have that critical mass, we're going to call for bids. Uh, sometimes we'll get 15, 20 offers. Uh, that, again, usually happens about, you know, 
we're now probably two, maybe three months into the process. We have contracts going. We'll get something signed up. And then if a buyer wants to get financing, it typically takes anywhere from 60 to 90 days to close. So that's how we get to the six months. Now, it can happen a lot faster. I mean, I, we've brought a property to market and closed on it within 30 days if a buyer's just writing a check for it. So, but again, you, you, you need, if, you, if you're looking to buy in New York, you have to be ready to move quickly. So, and just to explain to the listeners, a hard deposit means that if you put up money, it doesn't matter what happens unless there are specific things called out in a term sheet or uh, a purchase and sale agreement. You do not get your money back. There's no free look at the property. That's correct. And so let me ask you um, just on one part of the sales process where you said you call for bids, there's a bid date deadline or an offer date deadline, you get 15 or 20 bids. So I want to talk a little bit about it, specifically what happens now, because this part of the process to me, I always find incredibly fascinating as, and, and since I've been through it a number of times, you start to get the hang of it, but somebody who's a little bit new to it might not understand exactly how it works. So as an example, I am always told, no matter what deal I bid on, I am always the lowest bidder, no matter what. Is every single person who bid the lowest bidder? No, no, not 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 at least from my perspective. I mean, I I, I really try to play it as straight as possible. I'm not going to you know, necessarily shop other offers and tell you, you know, where you are in the pecking order. I'm going to speak more in ranges, but, you know, I don't want to spin people's wheels. And if you're out of contention, I'm going to say, Zach, you're out of contention. Let's go find you something else. This is really where we see this trading. And if you're in the mix, I'll tell you that you're in the mix. But, you know, all we have in this business is our time. And so I, I, I don't subscribe to that, that philosophy. I, I really try to coach buyers along. And when they're, you know, when they have a real shot at them, uh, at the property, I tell them what they need to do to get there. And usually when people are looking at the materials and they're going through the process prior to submitting a bid, will you give them a range of, you think it's going to trade between 50 and 53 million or do you just say, you know, tell me what your bid is and let's see where things shake out? No, we, we absolutely look to guide them. So when guidance comes in, typically a bidder is probably not going to bid something way outside on either side, on one side or the other. And if those bids come in, it's going to be spread within probably that range. Will you go back, as long as the bids are within that range, what does it look like after that? Do you sit down with the seller, go through and say, hey, who's serious, who's not serious? Or do you immediately go back to the, the buyers, prospective buyers, and say, you need to be a little bit higher? Right. So first of all, I just want to say that about three quarters of the time or more, we are going to have an asking price. So we're going to go out to the market. You're going to know what our expectations are. Sometimes we'll ask to submit offers and that that's where there is more price exploration that's that's taking place. Once we get to that point, when we have those offers and we're analyzing them, again, that's when we really dig in. We want to know who submitted these offers, what are their terms, uh, in some cases, we want to see proof of funds. We want to know they have, you know, how are they looking to capitalize this transaction? How much are they looking to borrow? Is this buyer going to try to borrow 90% to make this purchase, which is never going to happen? We want to make sure that they have the ability to do this. And once we've identified our top, you know, three, four, half a dozen prospects, then, you know, unless if there's a clear standout, oftentimes there's going to be a second round. And, you know, and being for, formerly an attorney, or I guess always an attorney, always right? An yes, attorney. still an attorney. Uh, reformed attorney, um, retired, retired, good, partially retired. So, um, you know, sometimes we'll issue multiple contracts. Where if you're a buyer and you know that you are competing with several groups who also have contracts, right? And we tell you we're looking for your best and final market markup of this contract. We want to see your best price, best terms, and you're going to be judged on the quality of your markup. I mean, that's really tough because now you're spending, you've already spent your, your due diligence dollars to really research the property. Now you're spending legal and you don't even know if you have the transaction yet, sure. but that's how competitive our market is. Yeah. And even in other markets, that's a signal to from buyers to show, am I serious? Yes or no. If you're serious about buying it and you think there's a potential deal, you would be more likely to spend money on legal fees. That's right. Um, so a deal that I was looking at in Florida, I was told after the first round, I was the lowest bid. I left a little bit of a cushion to raise my price because I knew this was going to happen. They came back and said, out of the three people who made it to the second round, you're still the lowest bid. You need to raise your price. So I said, this is my price because that's what I was comfortable paying. And I was pretty sure what was going to happen, which was three days later, the broker called me and said, hey, the owner decided that he wants to sell it to you at your price because you're a lawyer. You can get through documents more quickly and he's more comfortable selling it to you, which I thought was funny because he kept telling me that my price was too low. 
Uh, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with James Nelson of Avison Young. This is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Zach Scheinberg. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. James Nelson from Avison Young is here in the studio. So let's get back to the the brokerage process for a second. I got a couple more questions on that, and then we'll move into some other things. So what is the dividing line between puffery and just BSing somebody? Because I think that for a lot of brokers, they are they very aggressively want to represent the seller and help the seller get the best deal. But there is definitely a line, and I've, I've experienced it, where I just feel like the broker is lying to me. So where where is that line, and how do you manage that? Zach, I, I really think we need to do more business here. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a lot. I'm feeling more like a therapist here. But um, look, I, I really don't subscribe to that. I mean, look, we're, we're busy. We've got transactions. We have a lot of different listings we can offer. So to try to create a story or you know, bluff a buyer and tell them they got to do this and we don't have it. It's just, that, that's, that's, sorry to disappoint, but that's, that's not, I, no, that's, that's not how I operate. That's... I just say, look, this is what it is. This is where you need to be. This is how we're selling the property. If you're interested, yes, you're going to have to compete. And a lot of the buyers don't want to hear that. They say, James, why do you have to run this whole process? Why can't we just do this now? And I say, look, you know, if you were in the seller's shoes, you want to get the highest price right? This is, we want to run a fair process. If you pay the highest price on the best terms, you get the property. So that's refreshing to hear. Uh, and I would love to buy a property from you. The problem is that I know that you will get top dollar. So I'm always that's worried. Right, well, so then you, you'll, you'll sell your, your I will, I'll sell, uh, I'll sell million property. dollar portfolio with me. We'll have to build it first. So I have a hundred million dollars to go. Uh, so I, I want to just do this little exercise for a second. Um, I'm going to give you, assuming all the things being equal, I'm going to give you a property tell you two different things about it and just tell me which one to you is more valuable from the perspective of the buyer or the seller. So residential property, same two properties, one has an elevator, one's a walk-up. Mm-hmm. Which one's more valuable? Which one will a buyer pay more money for? I hate to say it depends, but one thing you'd find very interesting is that walk-ups in New York City actually sell for a higher price per foot than elevators. And you'd say, James, why is that the case? The elevator is the better building. Well, in New York City... We have rent regulation that artificially controls rents. And so what happens is in these elevator buildings, you have tenants who stay a lot longer because they like these buildings where if you're walking up and down five, six flights of stairs, you get a lot of movement in those buildings. So, um, you know, again, again, for for me, you know, if you wanted to be a generational owner, you want that elevator. Maybe one day it becomes a condo. Uh, exit. But if you look at just the numbers, the, the walk-ups actually sell for higher. Then also an elevator takes up more space in the building that you can't then rent or sell. That's true. Okay. Residential building that's 100% occupied or the same exact residential building that is 100% vacant? Again, it really... You're starting to see a theme it here. Really, it really depends, right? So if you're talking about a brand new class A apartment building, of, of course, I'm going to take the one that's fully leased. It's a lot easier to finance, right? You can get conventional financing. If you have a vacant property, a lot more challenging. You have to put in a lot more money, uh, get transitional financing. Uh, however, again, in New York, even though the condo market has seen some softness at the ultra high end... Uh, if you have a vacant property and you can go in and reconfigure uh, apartments, uh, maybe there is a condo prospect, that vacant property is going to give you a lot more options. Right, because potential redevelopment, there's another another potential uh, development play or business plan. That's right. Okay, office building that's on a main avenue, front, fronting a main avenue or fronting a side street? Avenue. And an office building on Madison Avenue, Park Avenue, or Fifth Avenue? Depends where on each of those avenues, um, you know, and it's interestingly enough. In the 50s, uh, midtown around where uh, okay. the banks are. Now, now, you, now you're talking. I will take Fifth Avenue because. You like shopping. You have uh, to be near Bergdorf. Well, the, you know, the, the retail helps. I mean, maybe it's not getting the three, four thousand dollars a foot that it was getting before, but it's, but it's still a, a pretty big driver. Which is an interesting comment. So when you're buying an office building in these areas, typically there is going to be ground floor retail. And if it's in a, in a place where people shop more. They're going to pay more money for it, which makes your building more valuable on an avenue where people shop. Um, So let's talk about retail for a second. In your view, what is going on with retail, not just in New York City, but in the entire United States with Amazon and online? Is retail significantly or materially less valuable than it was buying or buyers paying less or sellers selling for less? What's going on in the market with retail properties? So again, I can just speak to New York, but there's no question we've seen a massive decline in both rents and as a result, pricing. 
So uh, this first half of the year compared to last year, uh, retail sales values have dropped over 20%. Uh, as a result, there's been over 50% more transactions. So pricing comes down and there's so many investors on the sidelines waiting to jump in. And retail is really the contrarian play right now. They're looking to jump in and saying, well, maybe this market has overcorrected. But you look in some of these major corridors and the retail rents have been cut in half. Maybe they were a third what they were before. And you see a lot of vacancy. You know, for those of you visiting New York, you walk up and down the streets, you see a lot of vacancy. And yes, e-commerce, no doubt, uh, has been um, a game changer um, and has had a a, a big impact on uh, – traditional uh, retail stores. Um, But I also, I I think that is overplayed. Uh, What really happened in New York was that the rents over the last five years increased at such a dramatic rate. Why was it? Double, triple. You know, a lot of the retailers said, we have to have a flag on Fifth Avenue. We have to be in Soho. We're going to pay up no matter what it costs. The store doesn't even have to make money. It's a loss leader. A a loss leader. Exactly. So, you know, on the Broadway corridor in Soho, five years ago it was two fifty a foot, then some then it's three hundred, then it's five hundred, then it's seven fifty, then someone pays a thousand. Now and, and this is rent to be clear rent, for everybody per listening. square foot. Rent not That's the right. amount that you're paying per square foot to buy the building. That's correct. So in that five year period, did store sales increase two, three X? Absolutely not. In fact, we know they declined. So that just further perpetuated the issue. So let's uh, let's move into some other another part that I want to talk about. So I had mentioned to you that I wanted to talk about a deal, and so can you pitch me on this deal, and then I'm going to pretend that I'm the buyer, the prospective buyer, and just start asking you questions about it. Sure. Just to give people an idea of how a pitch works and what information you share and what kind of questions a prospective buyer is going to ask. Sure. And I hope I get them all right, or I have to hope good. I hit well, I, I, I hope you buy it. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how good I am at yes, my so you job. Can convince me. So, Zach, I want to offer you uh, a three-building portfolio down on the Lower East Side. This is a neighborhood where we've seen a lot of young professionals start to move to. You know, years back, it was uh, Greenwich Village, East Village. You see a lot of interest in this neighborhood. Uh, It's down on Forsyth Street. Uh, Right across from the park, we have three buildings. These are walk-up apartment buildings. They have a total of 57 units and there's seven stores. And Zach, the reason why I think this is a great opportunity is it gives you both great in-place cash flow. Okay. So what we are offering you is an in-place 5% return. But in addition, a third of the units are still rent regulated, meaning that these rents have been kept artificially low. And over time, as these tenants move on and you get these units back, you're going to be able to rent them for a lot more. But above and beyond that, the the, the other two-thirds of the apartments that are fair market and you can choose whether or not you want to renew those uh, tenants or you want them to vacate, um, those rents are also below market. The average two-bedroom down there is renting for $3,100 a foot – excuse me, $3,100 a month – and the building right next door is getting 4000 because they upgraded the common areas. So I am offering you a 5% return that you can get 65 70% financed in the 4% range. So you're going to get some positive leverage there. And I'm also giving you a ton of upside. And to top it all off, you're going to be buying into this in the mid $800 a foot range, where if you go up to the East Village, you're going to be paying over 1000 we're going to get to my questions in a second. This is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Zach Scheinberg in New York with James Nelson of Avison Young. And right now he's trying to sell me a deal. So let me ask some questions. So you said it's one-third rent regulated, two-thirds fair market with room to increase the rents. Correct. What are the expenses in the building? The expenses right now run at about 25% of the rent roll. 25% of the rent roll, the bulk of that being real estate taxes. That's correct. What are the cross streets? You said Forsyth and what? We're, we're right off uh, Henry Street. Forsyth and Henry. So mid-block. Yes. So you mentioned a little bit about the neighborhood has been improving. I've heard for years and years and years the Lower East Side is improving. It now seems to be. There's been mm-hmm. a bunch of development there. What are the amenities around the neighborhood? We have a lot of restaurants and bars. You have the park that's directly across the street. 
And you also have the uh, new Two Bridges project. So uh, Extel is currently building multi-million dollar apartments overlooking the water. But you've got great subway transportation there as well, so it's convenient. Um, and again, these are efficient two bedrooms that even if you went from $3,100 a month to 4000 you can have two roommates in there um, who are each paying you know, 1500 2000 a month, which, dare I say, is affordable here in New York. Yeah. So I know that before you, we talked, Airbnb wasn't your forte, but one of the reasons, part of the reason that uh, rentals are even more now in demand because what if the occupancy rate for rental apartments are in New York City right oh, now? 98%, 99%. And then with what just happened with Airbnb, the mayor of New York just signed a bill that said that Airbnb has to turn over all the data on all the hosts, which is going to scare a lot of people off. So that only helps the rental market. So going from 3100 to 4000 when there are comps is probably a reasonable thing to assume. Absolutely. So how many square feet is the building? So these buildings, I should know this off my top of my head, but they're roughly 40,000 feet, 40, three of them. But the and just so that everybody knows, James did this with absolutely no notes, and this is all from memory. <laughs> uh, so it's 40,000 feet. Is that what's allowed, or can you build more? No, th- th- this is a low-coverage area, so this is not a development potential, but I think it's also what keeps the neighborhood intact. You don't have to worry about your next-door neighbor building a 30-story tower, and then suddenly there's much more attractive apartments. I mean, these are the types of buildings that tenants are looking for in the neighborhood. So you said 57 units. How many floors are the buildings? They're five-story walk-ups. Five-story walk-ups. Okay. And you said the four plans are, you you used to call them generous (laughs) two-bedrooms? Generous by New York standards. But yes, you're probably looking at maybe 600 square feet. For a two-bedroom? That's that's generous in New York, yes. So yeah, for everybody out there listening, 600 square feet for a two-bedroom Everywhere else in the entire world, except maybe Tokyo, would be extremely, extremely small. Right. But we get used to living in smaller space. That's right. All of our amenities are not in our apartment. They're all outside the front door. Uh, So you said the asking price was what? We are asking $30 million. That's it? That's it. And the NOI was what? You're looking at about a 5% return on that. So that's six hundred grand. Yes. Um, Cap rate, so 5% cap rate. And financing, what do you think you can get 60, 65% more than that? Absolutely. Yeah, 60, 65% would be the reasonable thing to do. You know, I, I wouldn't advise you to, you know, have high octane debt. I mean, this is really a long term hold. And so, yes, if you could get 20, $22 million on this, um, again, we're talking a low 4% borrowing rate. If you're buying the property at 5% and you're borrowing money at, at, at 4%, there's a there's positive leverage there. Is that are you assuming fixed or floating? Uh, I think you could probably do. I mean, you could do either, but I, I think you could lock in that type of money for at least five years. Okay. Uh, rent roll? Any issues with tenants not paying? You know, it, it, it's. Um, I think you'd actually hope if if there were tenants who uh, got a little bit behind that uh, because the rents are so low that you could improve upon them. But no, I, the, the tenants are paying the rents. And, and, and the retail, I should also say, in this case, there's seven stores. They're very manageable rents, twenty five hundred, five thousand a month. They're mom and pop. You know, um, you know, little stores. Uh, They've been there for a long time. Yes, from 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 the neighborhood. Okay. What about the physical condition of the building? Is there any significant capex you have to do? What does the roof look like? When was the last time it was replaced? Any structural remediation? Any water issues in the basement? Replacement of the boiler? Structurally, overall, the buildings are good, but the opportunity really is to upgrade the common areas. It's mostly aesthetic. You know, you can come in and bring in a higher level of renovation for the apartment. So when you turn units by that, you mean when somebody moves out, you would upgrade the appliances and the finishes and the floors? That's right. Uh, any environmental issues? Not that I know of. But but again, remember, we're selling this as is where is. You, you need to do your own research on that. <laughs> Noted. Um, so you mentioned rental cops in the area. What about sales comps? What are buildings like this? Not that any real estate is ever exactly comparable, but mm-hmm. there are similar buildings. What are similar buildings selling for per foot? Well, look, the average walk-up apartment building in New York City right now trades for over $1,000 a foot. So the opportunity here in the mid-800s a foot is because this is still... Uh, an area that is um, is changing, and you know, seeing again higher rents being paid. So that that's that's why I like the opportunity. Is I, I think there's still more uh, room to grow in the neighborhood. So because of 
this being an up-and-coming neighborhood with rents below what the market probably is, is that you convince the seller that that's about a 20% discount to what the prevailing sales comps are in the area? Uh, not in the area. We're, we're, we're still, uh, you know, if we get 850 a foot, we'll, we'll be doing well uh, in, in the neighborhood. But, no, you said 800, but, but relative, to negotiate a little bit. <laughs> but, but relative to, you know, other neighborhoods like the East Village. Okay. Why is the seller selling? And who's the seller? Or if you can say, I don't know if you can say, uh, why is the seller selling? It's a partnership, and uh, they're actually in the, the commercial side of the business. They do office properties. They, they you know, dabbled into residential and... Um, you know, re- residential is a, you know, I don't want to say a full-time job. You can certainly get a property management, but it is a lot more management intensive than just having sure. an office property. Uh, what deposit are you guys asking for and how much diligence? 10% as is where is. <laughs> and what's the process and, and timing? Well, at this point we're, we're ready to, um, transact. So we've actually, um, we did have a, a, a bid deadline. We had uh, a contract that was actually out. It's substantially higher than $30 million. Uh, they couldn't pull it together. So at this point, we're back out there with this reduced price of $30 million, uh, which I think is, is a lot more attractive. And if you're ready to, to make an offer, I'd love to see if we could go uh, straight to contract. You don't want to give me a site tour first I need to make sure that the building exists. <laughs> Look, as crazy as it sounds, we've actually sold several properties before sight unseen. And we see that with a lot of the foreign buyers who are coming That's in. I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, but yes, you should do a tour. And, and for all of uh, your listeners out there, uh, you want to do that with um, – you want to have your team in place. So what, is, what are the doubts? So this, um, for everybody listening, in my opinion, this is a reasonable deal to buy in New York City. What are, What is – what are the problems with this building? What are the red flags that um, you've identified going through your process? Well, again, it's just you need to be ready to roll up your sleeves. It's management intensive. Uh, you know, even doing something as simple as the hallways or apartments, there's a lot to get those approvals in, in, in New York. Uh, but it's it's worth the time and energy if you can do it. Okay. Well, send me the OM when we leave. Good. I'll take a look. All right. This is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Zach Scheinberg in New York with James Nelson of Avison Young. I want to spend a couple of minutes now just talking about the the market a little bit more generally. Um, So at the beginning of my class in Michigan, and I think that the students didn't really understand why I was doing this at the beginning of the semester, but I think hopefully towards the end they, they got an understanding of why I was asking them to do this. I would spend five or 10 minutes at the beginning of class asking them to mention some or talk about some current event that's going on in the market and how they think that it might affect real estate. So sometimes the answer was, sometimes the answer was this has absolutely nothing to do with real estate. And sometimes or more often it was this probably affects real estate in maybe a particular market or asset class or in the capital markets because of X, Y, and Z. So I want to do that with you now. So people are talking a lot about the tax plan, Trump's tax plan, and this mm-hmm. provision that was included uh, that has created this thing called opportunity zones. So briefly explain, if you can, what that is and how you think that affects real estate. Sure. So this was really something that the real estate community wasn't focusing on when, you know, the tax plan, there was a lot of discussion about how gains were going to be uh, treated. And of course, uh, we'll probably get to some of the the tariffs uh, that have been uh, employed. But uh, with this, uh, it was designed for neighborhoods with certain demographics to encourage investment in them. And so it, it's really almost neighborhood by neighborhood. And the way it works is um, – and for, for, for those of you who have done 1031 tax-free exchanges before, and what that is is you sell property and then if you can reinvest the, um, the proceeds into a like-kind – uh, property, you defer the capital gains because when you're a long-term holder of real estate and you sell property, uh, it's at the capital gains rate. This actually works not just for those having sold real estate, but any capital gains. So this is a great opportunity, especially for some of your listeners. If they're not in the business yet, maybe they, they just sold a company um, and they can take those gains, invest them into a property in the opportunity zone, which is you know across the U.S., and the way it works is if you invest in the property and you hold it for at least five years, there is a 10% deduction in your capital gains. Uh, and then if you hold it seven years, it then is 15% in total. 
if you hold it for over 10 years, um, you, any other gains above and beyond uh, are tax-free, which is uh, – and I think I got your attention there because that, that, that is very rare that you have an opportunity to uh, make a profit and not have to pay uh, a capital gain. So I, I think this is going to have a massive, massive implication uh, throughout the U.S. Yeah, so that seems to be the consensus among many people in the real estate investment business that I've talked to. The big concern that everybody has at this point is that the IRS is kind of unsure about how this is going to play out. So everything that people think right now, based on the language of the bill, nobody's really sure how it's actually going to play out. So people are in somewhat of a holding pattern before they really execute anything because no one really knows what's going to happen yet. And the IRS hasn't really issued any guidance. That's right. And um, this is all supposed to happen in a six-month period after you make – you have your capital gain. You're supposed to go buy the property. You're supposed to spend twice the amount of money improving that property. So how does that all happen within a six-month window? Um, Real estate, as you know, takes time, a lot of time. You might buy that piece of land, and by the time you get approvals and to build, that might happen – you know, a year, two years from now when you're really going to need to deploy that that capital. So, yes, a lot of questions to be answered. And uh, but uh, if it's as, half as good as I think it is, uh, this is going to be uh, a game changer for the business. OK. And you mentioned Trump's tariffs. How do you think they impact real estate? So I spoke to my good friend Eric Brody from uh, Wonderworks the other day. Uh, he, he's a, a contractor. I really wanted to understand what are these tariffs doing? You know price of steel materials, and and we import a lot of these goods. And it's not just China. There's timber that comes from Canada, and this is going to have an impact. There there is no doubt. Um, What you have to remember is these construction projects, which are being built today, those materials were probably ordered, you know, six months, a year ago. And so now, I mean, we probably won't see the ramifications of this for another, you know, six months, a year. Uh, but the, the, I think the contractors are right now probably taking a lot of the burden, especially if they um, offered a guaranteed price for that developer. But moving forward, I don't know how it, uh, building costs don't go up. And unfortunately, that's going to be passed along to the, the end user, whether they're going to look to rent or buy that apartment. That's good insight. So I have a final question for you. You're a child of the 1980s. You were born in 1976 or 78? 75. 75. Who's your favorite 1980s band? <laughs> wow. Um, Nelson? That's what it was supposed to be. I'm going to have to was, – was, when did Guns N' Roses come on the scene? Was that, was that 90s? Early or? 80s. That was early 80s. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go with Guns N' Roses. We are unfortunately out of time. Thank you to James Nelson of Avison Young for joining the show today and telling us that he loves Guns N' Roses. If you want to reach out to James, his email address is james.nelson at avisonyoung.com in order to get some great pricing if you're selling a property. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.